Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello. Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to Government vs. the Robots, the fortnightly podcast where we take a look at how technology will influence politics in the future. This week, we're looking at the potential impact of big data on the body politic. We already know that companies use data to target our weakness or predilection for things like ice cream and chocolate. But what can government do to bring us some of the collective benefits of all this new information? My friend Claire Malamad works with governments across the world as part of a UN initiative that looks at just this question. And she rolled down the hill on her bike from even further north London to talk to me about some of the possible implications of all this new information. Claire, thanks very much for coming. Pleasure, nice to be here. ask you to introduce yourself to everybody? Sure, my name's Claire Malamid and I am the director of an organisation called the Global Partnership for Sustainable Development Data, which is all about bringing together different kinds of organisations to, to um, get data for the public good. And just before we started recording, I said this was very informal, but I feel I should point out to anybody listening that you are actually a doctor. <laughs> yes, I am, although not of the medical kind. If, you, <laughs> if we have a sudden crisis, you'll still want to call 999. Um, I usually start these interviews by kind of asking a question about the person I'm interviewing and when they first came across or started to be interested in the thing that they've ended up working on. Um, and it's usually a childhood story. But I guess for you... It might not be um, because data has kind of become more and more of a recent phenomenon. So when did the penny drop for you that data was an issue that needed working on? I think it was a very slow drop over probably 20 years or so. One of the first things I did in my career was go and do some field work for my PhD um, in the late 90s in a village in the far north of Mozambique, which was just opening up again after a long war. Um, and, you know, I went in as a sort of student, you know, didn't really know very much. Um, and I realised very quickly that there was absolutely no information about this village. Nobody knew how many people lived there. Nobody really knew what they did. Um, there was a, not even the people who lived there and certainly not the government whose job it was to help to provide services and infrastructure for them. So one of the first things that I had to do that I hadn't expected that I was going to have to do was to actually do a big survey and get the whole village together and find out how many people lived there and how the villagers themselves were understanding who was richer and who was poorer and what were the definitions of that. So I started out collecting my own data and then increasingly have become interested in how the data that's collected by other people, by governments, by companies, is used in all kinds of ways to influence our lives for good and bad. Um, And then in, in the kind of more recent, I think there's a... 
I don't know if there's an equivalent of Moore's law for data in terms of uh, that's where processing power and computers doubles every year data it feels like it's probably not far off so in the more recent years when did your kind of when were your eyes open to the potential of big data I think my eyes have opened sort of together with a lot of other people's eyes over the last few years. And I think this is a this is an example, really, of how things look very different in different sectors. The private sector companies, not just those that produce data, but also those that use data, have obviously been investing in this area and understanding and learning how it can deliver benefits for their businesses for a very long time. And I think that the public sector, to some extent, is just catching up. So really this happened in a very noticeable way during a big UN process of a few years ago where the UN was debating a new set of global goals, the sort of next to-do list for the world. And in that process, a lot of governments were starting to understand how some of these new technologies and new data sources could help them, first of all, to monitor the progress of the goals, but probably even more importantly, to achieve them and how it could help to improve their health services or their education or just know what's going on in their countries. And that was a sort of pivot moment, I think, where lots of people suddenly all at the same time thought, aha, there's something here. And it's become something that's much more part of the global policy and political agenda since then. And one of the things we do here on government versus the robots, we're looking specifically at technologies and how they might affect politics in the future, but also phenomena that are driven by technologies. And there's barely a technology that doesn't seem to generate more data. Um, and I think a lot of people tend to think that the, this proliferation of data is a, is a worrying thing. And I'm sure there are reasons for that. And I, I want to talk about the public sector and its capacity to manage and regulate data in a little while. But Instead of asking why I should be freaked out about people having more data on me, are there reasons why I should be excited about people having more data? Absolutely. And I think actually people use it all the time without really noticing it. You know, we notice the stuff that we're scared of, but there's all kinds of ways in which data is already making people's lives better that that we are so used to now that we don't really notice it. I mean, think about, you know, you're waiting at a bus stop, you can send a text and find out exactly to, to the minute when your bus is coming. That's because the buses all are all equipped with little GPS, um, with little, you know, GPS um, things that will tell you exactly where they are on the road. That's data. If you're driving, you know, if you're driving in your car and you're using Google Maps, then they'll tell you if there's a traffic jam ahead and they'll tell you what's a good route to avoid it. That's because... Google is taking the data from your phone or whatever you're using and everybody else's in the area and is seeing if traffic is moving or not and helping you to work, to navigate a way around that. We all use those things all the time and that's data. And go on then, should I be freaked out about the way in which some companies use data? <laughs> I think that, I think yes, actually. And I think not necessarily now because there are some instances of things that people would rather not have happened but we haven't seen you know fingers crossed anything absolutely terrible happen yet but certainly it raises the possibility of bad things happening and i would prefer that we governments and others focus their attention on making policy making rules creating the kind of social norms that govern behavior so that we can prevent some of that bad stuff before it happens rather than waiting for the crisis Okay, so if a bit worried, I mean, I someone told me a tale of uh, Uber using different pricing structures for different people based on the data that they're able to collect about where you live. So if you keep getting dropped off in a particularly nice neighbourhood, they might take a punt that you're more able to afford an Uber than if you keep getting dropped off in a less well-to-do neck of the woods. Um, that sort of stuff feels a little bit 
unfair. Is it unfair? Well, to some extent, it's making transparent what's been happening just the way that markets have always worked. If you get a builder around to give a quote for some building work in your house, probably they'll have a look at the kind of furniture that you have and the area that you live in and give you a quote, which is partly based on how much work they think it is and partly based on what they think you can afford to pay. The quote might look different if you if they went to a different sort of house in a different area. That's how markets work. Markets are always about trying to reconcile what people are prepared to pay with what it is that people want to charge and to some extent that's always been happening for as long as we've had markets and this is just a different way of doing it so I don't think I think we should think a little bit harder before we get outraged about that but of course the danger there is when things are not transparent and where one party has a lot more information than the other party so that's where the regulation comes in. But the fact of that happening, that's as old as, eco- as economics. And so, I mean, I guess the balance and well, actually, just what I'm thinking, I guess the disparity of information is kind of as old as economics. I mean, I don't know very much about how to plaster a wall, for example. <laughs> so I guess there's always, you know, the, the, the sellers always had a slight, yeah. mm-hmm. um, a slight head start. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that's changed here is scale. If you have, you know, 15 different small taxi companies operating in an area and they know the area and they all charge, the drivers all charge slightly different rates depending on, you know, whose house they're picking up from. Well, that's probably fine. That's, you know, if that means that richer richer passengers are subsidising slightly poorer passengers, maybe actually that's a good thing. But the difference here is that we don't have 15 different companies who are all competing with each other. We only have one Uber. So all of the information and all of the profit is concentrated in just one place. And I think it's that it's more of a an economic structure problem than an information problem sometimes. And when people talk about examples of the possible ills of data, they tend to use private sector examples. And when I think about kind of trying to think of the potential of all of this data that's generated, I tend to lean towards where the public sector could use it. It seems to me there's a massive disparity between the data owned by the private sector in its capacity to use that data and the data owned by the public sector. Is that right? Absolutely. I mean, I think there are concerns that some people have about data that's held by the public sector too. I mean, you, I don't know if, if you remember a few years ago, there was a big policy debate and fuss in this country around data that was held um, by the National Health Service about people. And the National Health Service had a plan where they wanted to join up different data from GPs, from hospitals and things to you know, they're in their words, in their arguments to provide a better service and also to make research easier so people could understand what was happening to people and help to improve the service. There was a huge fuss about that. People felt, some people felt it was a gross invasion of privacy and that the potential then for that data being abused was was much greater if the data was joined up and in fact the government dropped the idea. So it's not, people are worried also about the public sector use of data as well as the private sector. But I think that you know, to some extent, the definition of what's happened and the reason why everybody is so excited about data is because of this big shift that's happened between most data being collected and held by the public sector to now most data in terms of volume being collected and held by the private sector. That's the sort of definition of the change that's happened over the last few years or one way of thinking about it. So, of course, that presents a whole new set of issues around who's going to have access to that data. Whose data is it? You know, if Google Maps collects data from your phone, is it theirs or is it yours? Because you're the one who's actually produced it by walking or driving around the street. Um, And we don't really know. These things are kind of being made up just by practice and by companies doing stuff. But 
nobody's actually sat down and made a rule about it. We're just sort of in the process of working it out as we go along. And I think it's partly that uncertainty that makes people so frightened. And that question of ownership, I mean, whether it's owned by the company that collects it or the person that generates it, it it still exists without getting too kind of philosophical (laughs) about it. And in that sense, it could conceivably looked at as a public good, something that could be used for the benefit of everybody. Um, In reality, it seems to me like there's, there's... corporate capture of quite a lot of that data i don't is the public sector even equipped to make the most of the data not at the moment but that is equipping the public sector to do that is a matter of money and it's a matter of people and that's to some extent the easy bit i mean i think there is a huge disparity opening up between the public and the private sectors around the investments that they're making in their ability to use data. You know, every week in the FT, there's a story about some new company which is increasing, it's hugely increasing its investment in data scientists and in computing technology and in data storage and so on. So I think I think there are big inequalities opening up between public and private sector in their ability to use and store and process data. And ultimately, then that means that they're able to do different things with it and other inequalities open up there. But that's not... The biggest question, I think, is this question of ownership and who actually uses it. At the moment, with people who are spending a huge amount of time and energy in developing data sharing agreements between public and private sectors and lawyers are sitting in rooms for months on end trying to work out contracts that will allow, say, you know, the NHS or any other part of government to have access to data from private sources in ways that will still allow the company to use that data to make a profit, that will protect people's privacy and so on. But that's all based on an assumption that it is the company that owns that data. As soon as you challenge that, then you're challenging a lot of the basis on which markets in data and regulation of data are working at the moment. And that, it feels to me, is the kind of core issue that we need to think hard about rather than just skating over and jumping to the next stage. So if I own my own data, which at the moment it sounds like I might not end up doing, but I'd like to think I would be able to stake a claim, perhaps through some five-year-long political process. Um, But if I do own my own data, is there a future in which people could become more empowered in the use of their own data to solve public problems? Well, in fact, you do and you don't own your own data. I'm probably one of the very few people who the other day thought, actually, maybe I will read the terms and conditions next time they pop up on on Apple. And uh, and actually, what it looked like to me, and you know, it would be great if anybody who's listening to this could, could tell me if this is the case, that you do own your own data, but that what you're agreeing to is essentially for the company to be able to use it in absolutely any way that they may see fit now or in the future. So it's a kind of an ownership, but it's also a licensing question. And of course, there are layers upon layers of this that can be, you know, can be sort of transmitted through through agreements forever and ever. So it's obviously never quite as simple as that. I hope you're enjoying this episode of Government versus the Robots. We'll be back in just a minute after this advert break. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. 
Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And we're back. Thanks for bearing with us. Let's get back to the studio with Claire. But we tend to see the default position, and correct me if I'm wrong, tends to be, ah, all these companies have got all this data on me. That's a terrible thing. And actually, if you think about it in the data you possess and you think you can pool this data with your peers or with other people and say, right, we're going to look at the data we're generating and ask how we can solve problems ourselves Mm -hmm. using that data. So empowering people through data to solve problems. Is that something that's even realistic? I think it is realistic and I think increasingly it is happening. I mean, first of all, the fact that companies have data on you is not necessarily a bad thing because they're using it to deliver services that you, on the whole, like. Otherwise, you wouldn't be using them. You know, and we're all benefiting all the time from companies having access to our data. So I don't think we should demonise this. You know, data is lubricating the economy and helping to improve services and give us new things that we never even thought were possible by the public sector in all kinds of ways. So we shouldn't make this a kind of big, you know, public bad, private good um, thing. And we are all already benefiting from the use of our personal data. And the question is, is then becomes can we prevent any possible harms from the use of our personal data, whether that's just being given, you know, advertising that we don't like or more sinister things about the use of data to track our movements or to identify certain groups of people. And then I think exactly as you're as you're saying, how can we do more good with that data? And that feels to me is really the central question. And I think there are two ways. There are two things that we need to think about. First of all is right now with this huge pool, these lakes, oceans of data that we have in the world, how can those be used to deliver more effective health services to be to understand much better how human populations are contributing to climate change and what we can do to change that to track migration and see you know how we can help to provide support to migrants at different stages along their journeys and so on there's a million different ways that we can think of how data could be used to improve public policy and i think that is an area where we really need governments to sort of focus to get on the case to think about the use of their own data and also how they can invest more more resources more knowledge more thinking more policy and regulatory time to think about how they can use this phenomenal new resource which is being created in their countries about their people and they could use to to improve you know if you think about the kind of information that a big supermarket has for example about the supply chain you know and they know there's big supermarkets in the UK who will know down to the individual farm what the productivity is of farmers who are producing their green beans in Kenya or their, you know, sweet corn or whatever else. And that information is incredibly useful to governments. So they just need to think about what's out there and how to get it. So there's that sort of public public policy use as well, which I think is, is incredibly important. And then there's all the future stuff. There's all the things that we don't know about yet. And I think there it's about it's about sort of choosing 
different paths of where the innovation and the, and the the kind of future use of data is going to come from and for what. At the moment, most of that activity is concentrated in the private sector, and we have some amazing brains and phenomenal amounts of um, phenomenal amounts of resource and computer power and whatever being dedicated to developing you know new flavors of ice cream on the basis of what people are buying now and what they might like in the future. We all love ice cream, but it would be good to have some of that resource and energy and knowledge being also devoted to improving education or improving health. And that's about who is investing, who has the resources, and it's about the inequalities that are opening up between public and private sector in the use of data. I worry, Claire, that the uh, answer to any supermarket <laughs> doing research on what flavour should anything be is almost always salted caramel. <laughs> on that, I'm with you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but before we go down a complete sidetrack, uh, what you, you hang out with government leaders. I mean, you know, you're dead right. It, it, little coalitions of citizens can get stuff done, but generally, as people, we look to our governments to solve problems for us. Um, which governments, where maybe in the UK, maybe elsewhere? are sort of doing well in starting to try and make the most or think about how to make the most of all this data? Lots of them, actually. And I think this is a really positive story. You know, there are lots of governments, um, you know, in our own government here in the UK, in Europe, which are thinking very hard about these questions of regulation and privacy and really trying to come up with new laws and new ideas and new ways of sharing data between public and private sector. That's happening. There's also most of the work that we do in the Global Partnership is... Um, with a number of governments, you know, by and large come to us because they're interested in developing and in, in sort of investing in this area and seeing what's possible. And there's a huge excitement among many governments, particularly in Africa, about the possibility of sort of leapfrogging, of actually saving themselves a fortune and many, many years by jumping into some of these new technologies. So it should, you know, would have been five, ten years ago, you wanted to find out how many people lived in your country, how old they were, what jobs they did, you would have to invest millions of dollars, hire thousands of people to go out and do a census. And you'd have to have people, you know, in canoes and bicycles and whatever going around your country asking people questions. Now you can probably get a snapshot of that almost every day just because a large number of people have mobile phones. You can guess at the proportion of those who don't and the kinds of people that they are. You can get a pretty good estimate of the people in your country, where they live and what they're doing almost daily and certainly weekly. And there are lots of ways that governments can save themselves money and can leapfrog into new generations of technology. And I think increasingly that's something which is exciting to people and which hopefully will start to you know, level, put governments onto a more equal playing field. We'll start to level some of the inequalities that we see we, we do see in other areas. What are the, have you seen any particularly good examples of, of actual real changes governments have made as a result of data they've collected? Absolutely. I mean, the, there are some sort of very small examples. So, for example, Ghana is one of the countries that we work in. And I um, was talking to a guy there, one of our sort of close colleagues working there in the department of, in, the, in the statistical service there. And he was telling me about um, when he was a, a more junior statistician working in one of the districts, you know, the sort of local lowest level of district administration in Ghana. And um, and they didn't really know, you know, the, the local authority, obviously, like every local authority, collects taxes and everybody, of course, is trying to avoid taxes. And they so the local authority really had no idea kind of who lived in the area, who owned what property, who owned what businesses. So they, they were pretty much all at sea and kind of just had to take what they were given in terms of tax. So he went out there and did a proper survey and, you know, worked out, you know, was able to sort of track and map every house, every business, and, you know, put this all down, made this data available to the 
to the local revenue authority, tax take in that district went up 500% in one year. And that means better streets, it means better schools, it means all kinds of things that governments pay for. Um, so there's lots of sort of small examples like that of things really, of the way that kind of better information can really change everything that governments do. And I think thinking a little bit more about politics of this how is it going to matter to people how is it going to drive decisions they make about which politicians to support and where so we've spent a bit of time talking about which politicians or which governments are going to be best able to capture the pos- the, the potential of data to deliver services in a way that's electorally successful for them um so i'm not going to ask about how politicians might be able to use data to win votes <laughs> Um, but although that is the incentive for politicians, which is a good incentive, true. and we should remember that that's very tr- how d- democracy is supposed to work. Very true. But generally in the UK, I mean, you referenced it with the NHS record sharing stuff. Um, it's tended to come down to I don't want you to know this stuff about me, um, and that feels. I mean, to me, it feels defensive. Uh, other people will legitimately disagree for a variety of reasons. Do you think we do you think there's likely to be a debating point? Do you think there's a kind of future tipping point or future moment in which the kind of prevalence or use of data might come back up the agenda, whether it's companies trying to do next level stuff, whether it's governments trying to merge more records and and what's the next kind of big data conversation that's likely to be politically relevant? And we've had privacy, we've had security, we still do. They keep coming back. Is there anything else? I mean, I think, first of all, on privacy and security, I think for me, the conversation changes when people start to see the benefits. I mean, there's a huge amount, you know, we have all this as if it's new. There's a huge amount of information that we do hand over to the government as a matter of course, and everyone thinks that's fine. You know, you're not allowed to have a baby and not tell people that you've had a baby. You're not allowed to have a death in your family and not tell people that there's been a death. And people don't go, you know, people don't see that as a big issue of rights. Why am I, why do I have to tell the government that I've had a baby? That's outrageous. It's a gross infringement of my privacy. Because, of course, once you register your baby, then the baby gets access to NHS treatment, gets to go to school, da, 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 all the things. So people are happy, you know, as long as the sort of social contract is there and people can see both sides of it, I think gradually norms will change and we'll don't know where we'll get onto that point, you know, where the line will be drawn about what information people are and aren't happy about handing over but this is not new there is lots of information that we do hand over to the government and we do so willingly so we shouldn't again it's a question of degree it's not an absolute black and white thing that we've never thought about before but you know there'll be a social contract it feels to me like we've probably not thrashed it out yet so how how do you think thrashing it out might look i think it probably won't be a kind of big bang moment when suddenly we have some new piece of paper some sort of new magna carta those things tend to be pretty rare and generally follow episodes of deep conflict and the sort of thing that we probably don't really want to happen here and i think on you know probably these things will be worked out slowly and gradually so we had a moment in the nhs where people you know it felt like the government was stepping over the line you know then they need to go back and regroup and think okay well what is the you know, how how can we explain this to people and how can we make this happen in a more incremental way and in a way that does reassure people and what are the safeguards that we need to put around it? And that's what's happening. You know, new laws are being made, new custom practice is being established. And I think it will happen in a way that we don't notice. That yeah. It will, you know, just gradually evolve. And every so often there'll be a moment where it feels like people have stepped over the line and we don't want that to happen. Um, or a moment when people become uncomfortable. There was a, there was a whole... 
you know, there was a recently uh, a big debate about the information that was collected about children in school. And that was a feeling of stepping over the line around sort of the government collecting information about children in school for purposes that people felt very uncomfortable about. And then, you know, and then it, they roll back and forward and, and that's how it works. I mean, I think you were also asking about the next frontier. I think, I think the next frontier will be changing the focus from data to the ways in which people are using that data. You know, we have a big focus on data as if the data itself gives us the insight. But of course, most of us can't use the data. You know, we, you know, we, we focus on kind of will that, you know, will a big mobile phone company hand over, make its records public. But frankly, if they were, you know, I can't go online and look at, you know, millions and millions and millions of data points and make any sense of it. And nobody can. What we need, then the power transfers. If we sorted out this question of data sharing, the power would then transfer from the owners of the data to the people who know how to get the answers that are contained in the who know you know how to ask a question and how to get an answer and that's still a tiny minority of people that will still concentrate power in very few hands just slightly different hands and the question then will be around the development of algorithms the development of the kind of artificial intelligent programs that can keep learning from that data and change their practice accordingly it will still be a big concentration of power. It'll still be very unaccountable and we'll have to think very hard about how we want to manage that. Mm. We live in times which are very uncomfortable politically for lots of people. Um, we heard from John Coventry a few weeks ago about online petitions and people power and we touched on fake news and what it is to be authentic. In an environment where increasingly people are willing to be economical with the truth, shall we say, uh, does data have a role in public discourse, do you think, in terms of being able to cut through interpretations and spin and so on I think it does and it doesn't I like to think that it does and certainly for me that's a big part of the attraction of working with data is the way that data paints a picture of the world which is to some extent you know which is true and which can show people as they really are and sometimes in surprising ways in a ways that challenges people's assumption but I don't think we should fool ourselves that data is politics and we think about the climate change debate the scientific facts and the data on climate change all point in one direction and there's really no debate about that and yet people still debate the facts about climate change and policy is still not keeping up with the data so it's not as simple as that and nothing there's never one single trigger that you can pull and everything's okay otherwise we would have done it by now but I certainly think the data is part of that story and I think you know, one of the things that I hope and the, through the this more much bigger public conversation about data and through organisations like mine is that people will gradually become more data literate. You know, we're all very comfortable describing the world in words. There are many people who sort of freak out and go, oh, numbers, and oh, I don't know about that. And, you know, I was terrible at maths at school and I can't do that about data in a way that you rarely hear people, hear people saying, I can't. I can't look at a picture. I can't do art. You know, I can't read a newspaper. I can't do words. And I would like it if we were able to change the conversation that data just became part of our everyday language. Are there any politicians, to your knowledge, for whom data is part of their everyday language? Are they are they leading us in this environment? What's your assessment of their uh, general data literacy? I think politicians like you know, like the rest of the world are becoming more data literate. I'm sure there's as big a spread among politicians in different countries as there is among the general population. And I'd be very interested to hear what civil servants have to, who are feeding politicians their information, at least in this country, have to say about that. But again, I think data doesn't 
eliminate the need for political choices. I would also, you know, we talk about data-driven policy. I think it's absolutely important that politicians know the data, know what the facts are as they're making a decision and know what the likely consequences of that decision is for different groups. But I would hate to live in a world where policy was only driven by data because policy is about political choices. You can know that if you tweak your education spending in a certain way that will benefit one group of children potentially at the cost of another but knowing that doesn't tell you whether that's the right thing to do that's still a political choice data can in, can tell you what the facts are and what the consequences are but that doesn't there's no there's never a single right answer or rarely so i think data driven policy making is is a data is an input but is not a shortcut through what are still political questions Cool. So just a couple of last questions. Um, you've worked with some really interesting people. Um, we worked together a couple of years ago. I'm not saying that means the same thing. <laughs> uh, who have been the most inspirational people that you've you've worked with in the last few years? The inspirational people that I've worked with in the last few years actually have been people like the colleague from Ghana I was talking about earlier. You know, the people who are just quietly in their own way within their own orbit getting on with stuff and really making a difference. So, you know, colleagues in the Ghana Statistical Service, in the Ministry of Agriculture in Kenya, the Chief Statistician of Somalia. You know, there are people who are just in a very thoughtful, deliberate way in the, you know, with the circumstances that they've been given, really thinking through how to make this work from a kind of deep belief in in public service and a kind of creative imagination of how they can, an excitement about how they can kind of project forwards into this exciting new world that we're in and solve the problems that they have in front of them. And where you've seen people achieve change, what have been the characteristics that they've demonstrated that you think are most important to successfully driving change? <laughs> I think one above all others, and it's one that's very hard to measure and that we don't give enough credit, which is, I guess, the the sort of the way that we generally frame it is sort of political savvy. Hmm. It's, you know, lots of people know what they want to do. Lots of people have the skills in terms of the numeracy or the programming or the whatever the technical skill is to allow them to do it. There are very few people who are able to take both of those things and work out who is the person they need to talk to to get the funding to do it. How can they get the permission to do it from the institution that they're in? Once they've done it, how can they make sure that the right people are aware of it so that other people will start doing it too and be translated? So I think it's it's politics and the ability to navigate politics above all. Great. Claire, thanks ever so much for rolling down the hill from North London. I really appreciate you coming in. Thanks. Really enjoyed the conversation. So I don't know about you, but I'm not freaked out just yet. But I wouldn't mind seeing more evidence of government being able to use data for good. My thanks, as always, to Cecilia Armstrong for her help editing and producing this episode. That's it for this week. But as ever, if you like what you've heard, please like it, share it, tell your friends about it. You can find us on social media on Twitter at Government versus the Robots, which is at G-O-V-T underscore V-S underscore Robots. Facebook at Government vs The Robots or find me on Twitter at TanaJC. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.